0: Good morning, it's good to be back with you all. I'll be reading Samuel chapter 7 verses 1 to 17. Now when the king was settled in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, see now I am living in the house of Cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about about among all people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and I've cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more and evil doers shall afflict no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a road such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David.
1: Last Sunday was, as many of us know, our first Sunday service that we were able to hold in our church building since the coronavirus restrictions forced us to close our doors back in March. And I think it's fair to say that for the 17 of us who were able to be there, it was deeply moving to be back in the sanctuary, even if the service itself was some way from what we remember or desire. I also hear that everyone else who joined us online found it a good service which is great because we will need to find ways of straddling the in-person in-building versus online divide for some time to come. And although last week was a trial run, uh, as Nigel has just said, unless we face further restrictions we will be back in our building for a service again in November. And as I've been reflecting on this experience during the week, What has struck me was the sense I felt of coming home to our building. It was similar, I think, uh, to the feeling I sometimes get in a cathedral. Uh, That sense that I'm I'm in a place where God has been worshipped for so many years, that, that this building has been a home for God's people for so long, that it somehow feels easier to enter God's presence there compared to, say, the street outside or uh, the spare bedroom or the kitchen or wherever it is I happen to be zooming in from. It was wonderful to be back in God's house. And it's this idea of building a house for God that lies at the heart of our reading this morning from the second book of Samuel. Here we find one of the key turning points in the Hebrew Bible. It's the moment of decision to build a temple in Jerusalem. In the end, of course, it isn't David who actually builds God's house. It's his son Solomon who constructs the first great temple in fulfillment of his father's dream. But Solomon's project is simply the fulfillment of the dream we find articulated here by David, who says to the prophet Nathan, see now i am living in a house of cedar but the ark of god stays in a tent and in this one sentence the whole history of religion shifts if we think back on the story so far we can trace an evolution in the way the israelites thought about their god and our journey through the narrative lectionary has been taking us on this journey So the original revelation of God to Abraham was a moment of startling insight into the nature of God. Up until Abraham, each nation, each tribe, each household had their own gods. There were thousands of them. The God of the river who gave fish to eat, the God of the fields who gave grain to grow, the God of the sky who causes rain and sun. The God of my tribe who helps me fight against your tribe, the God of my house, who I pray to every night for safety and for good sleep and so on and so on and so on. And to Abraham, God says that there is only one God and that God is the Lord of the whole earth. So Abraham's calling for him and his descendants is to become the people who enter into a relationship with the one true God in order that all the earth might be blessed through their witness to this new truth. Well, fast forward through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph to God's people in slavery in Egypt. And here we come to the next milestone, which is the story of Moses and the Exodus. Through Moses, God leads his people out of slavery and into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Forget for a minute the discussions about whether all this happened historically, because it almost certainly didn't. But that's not the point. The story of Moses and the Exodus gives us a story of how God works in human history. It reveals God as the liberator of the oppressed, as the enemy of empires. And the image of the people of God wandering in the wilderness is a timeless example of God's people in every age, with each generation making its own pilgrimage from slavery to promised land. Anyway, as they wander, as as we wander, the message is clear. God travels with us because God is the Lord of all the earth. But then we get to Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments and things start to change gear again because the people starts to seek certainty and stability. The big problem you see with a big God is that we have very small lives and we want to know what we should do and how we should live day to day. So God gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments to guide them in their wandering, to help them live well as the people of God's covenant as they make their pilgrimage through the wilderness. Except, of course, it isn't all that long before the Ten Commandments become thousands of commandments. And you only have to read through the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy to see how once you start down the path of asking God for a rule book, things get very complicated very quickly. And so the process of tying God down continues. And the God of the whole earth becomes incrementally that bit smaller, that bit more parochial, that bit more controllable. And by the time we get to David, God, the God of the whole earth, is now the God of Israel, who fights for them against other nations, who defends their borders and asks of them obedience and faithfulness. And so for David, king of Israel, the next logical step is to build God a house. There's a clever bit of wordplay here. Because David says that he wants to build a house of God, by which he means a temple. And God says in return that he will build a house of David, by which he means a dynasty. And so through this, God gets a bit smaller again, becoming now not even the God of Israel, but the God of the southern tribes of Israel, as expressed through the temple in Jerusalem, and the God of David's descendants as they rule in Jerusalem. I told you this was a significant moment in the history of world religions. Here in this deal David does with God to build a house in exchange for a house. The great God of all the earth glimpsed by Abraham becomes a localized deity focused primarily on one city and one family. The Abrahamic assertion that there is only one God Which reveals the presence of God in all peoples and all places, becomes a diminished statement of territorial dominance, denying the validity of other paths to the divine. And so God gets put in a box. The Ark of the Covenant, containing the Ten Commandments, becomes the Holy of Holies, the little box at the heart of the massive temple complex, Only the high priest can go in there to see God, and then only once per year, everyone else is kept at a distance. The God who travelled with the faithful through the wilderness, the God who was with them in slavery, the God who calls them to new life, has become a God in a box, in a bigger box called the temple, in a bigger box called the city of Jerusalem, in a bigger box called the nation of Israel. Locked down, controlled. And the family that put in there, David's dynasty, get to control God because they, the story they tell of the deal that David did is one where God promises David an eternal kingdom and a throne for all time. Well, they say history is written by the winners. This story certainly justifies David's descendants. And so it might have continued, except, of course, Earthly dreams of perpetual power rarely run smoothly. Nobody has yet managed to start the empire that lasts for all time. After all, has God, as God has already shown in Egypt, God is against all empires. And it turns out that this includes those empires that have been established in God's own divine name. God will not stay in a box forever. Eventually, the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians and the Davidic monarchy, the Lion of David, loses its grip on power. At which point the promises of God to David in this story go through a process of reinterpretation and they become the hope for a future Messiah. One who will reestablish the kingdom of David, restore the power of Israel that other nations have taken away. Which is why when Luke tells the story of Gabriel's appearance to Mary, he quotes from this text, to help his readers understand something profound about Jesus as the revelation of God's action in human history. I'm just going to read from Luke chapter 1, verses 28 and then 30 to 33. You know it well. And Gabriel came to Mary and said, Greetings, favoured one, the Lord is with you. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. It's a direct quote from 2 Samuel chapter 7. All the messianic hopes of David's kingdom of a kingdom given to David and his descendants that will last forever. All of these are put on to Jesus at his incarnation. And then Jesus spends the rest of his life subverting them. Jesus may be, within the Christian tradition, the fulfilment of messianic hope. But it's a very different form of messiahship to the one that people were expecting. Jesus consistently refuses to raise an army. He turns away from those who would enact a political revolution in his name. He resists the title Son of David. Whenever anybody else tries to put it on him, Jesus always bites back calling himself simply the Son of Man. Jesus refuses to seek a palace, instead claiming that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He never marries, he has no children. The God revealed in Jesus doesn't want a house, either in terms of a building or a dynasty. Instead, Jesus constantly takes people back to Abraham's original vision of God as the universal Lord of all creation, confounding those who would use him to rebuild David's lost lineage of power. Jesus will not put God in a box. So my question for us this morning is this. What boxes do we put God in? Do we try and build temples for our God? Why is our worship space with its pews and its stained glass windows called the sanctuary? That's a temple word. Why was I moved to tears last Sunday when we worshipped there? Why does this matter so much to me? Do we seek to constrain God to certain worship styles or favoured theologies? Is God the God of us and our people, but not the God of them and their people? Do we seek to constrain God's action in our own lives, seeking settled status within ourselves instead of embracing a life of wilderness pilgrimage? If so, then we do need to be aware Because God will not be constrained and neither will God live in a box. God is the God of the whole earth and through Jesus and by the Spirit of Christ we are called to a vision of God that is bigger and more universal and more loving than we can ever conceive. The eternal kingdom that enfolds and embraces us all is no earthly kingdom, it is the kingdom of God and we build other empires at our peril.
2: Thank you, Simon. We will now have a a moment of reflection, um, to think about um, the message from the sermonette and at the end of that, we will um, have a panel discussion. Feel free to uh, post messages in the chat function or on Facebook Live. May I ask the panelists to um, unmute themselves and turn on their videos? Well, that, um, I think uh, Simon, uh, there's some very powerful questions for us. Um, And I think um, my challenge for you is um, well. If you have um, anything you would like to kind of add, or do you have any? Um, and if there's any question that you would like to to respond to, um, the ones I wrote down um, are um, kind of why. Why does the sanctuary? Matters so much for us and why do we tend to put god in a box or maybe on a more positive note what is your experience of god being bigger than the box that we put him in
3: andrea um, it's interesting actually because this whole concept of of not putting god in a box uh, is something i've been thinking about so much recently i think I think a lot of Christians really want certainty and they want so-called easy answers because it means it's it's been done for them and they, that they just follow the rules and the Bible is a rule book. And then everything is easy, except that what I've seen from that is a lot of people can get hurt if that is done in, in particular ways. Um, and what, one of the things I was thinking about from the sermon um uh, the conference I went to talked about being a feast in the wilderness for people who are wondering. And it talked about how to get more comfortable wandering in the wilderness. And it's really interesting. Simon and I uh, went camping, wild camping, in September in Scotland uh, for the first time. And I've always been nervous of this, like, I do not sleep well on a comfy bed. How on earth am I going to sleep well, uh, you know, on a little thin mat on the ground in cold Scotland? but actually it was amazing it needed quite a lot of careful planning um but it was incredible to wake up in the middle of nowhere and see the sunrise um and actually for me and this is not to denigrate any church buildings but for me that's actually where I feel closest to God and that was what moved me to tears um so I don't know for me personally I think there's something about how do I get comfortable in the wilderness both reality but also metaphorically how can one be comfortable with not having easy answers all the time.
2: Thank you. Um, Any thoughts from Susan, Duncan, Nick
4: Well, I had a thought about putting God in a box because it feels a bit like a mausoleum, doesn't it? That idea of, uh, you know, the Victorian graveyards where there was a box in which the revered person would be stored in those stone boxes, which are now deteriorating. And if you think about China and Moscow, they put their leaders into those mausoleums and tried to preserve their bodies. So it, there's, a, there's obviously a human impulse here which goes back into deep history because uh, you know I think some of the first ideas about temples and shrines were that they were places where the souls of the ancestors would, would be deposited. But I thought it was very interesting, the theme that Simon mentioned about how God was not constrained during the um, wanderings of the human beings, uh, of, the people, of the children of Israel in the desert. But it was only after they found this settlement. And, I, and then I was thinking about the connection with what we were hearing earlier on about the conference, about people who were wandering. Wandering and wondering about their faith, and it seemed to me as though it was in that time of movement and change that that, that God became well, spiritual ideas perhaps became uh, freer and more valued. But once there was a once there was a, s- a system that controlled it. It seemed as though that it was almost put. It was almost as though God had died and was being laid to rest in a box in a mausoleum.
2: Yeah, it's uh it's interesting. Uh, one of the things we talked uh, in past weeks was about how God can reveal Himself in in times of well pain and um, uh, whenever um, Christians are persecuted sometimes. Um, there are a lot of comments coming in from the chat. Um, so I was thinking of reading some of them uh, and Susan or with, if you would like to add anything, please uh, let me know. Uh, yeah, so trying to keep up with the <laughs> messages from the chat. Um, I think Jeff says that there's still a temptation to have a multiplicity of gods separated into compartments a God of science, a God of economics, a God of politics, a God of nostalgia, and we can't miss the union of all of these into we can miss the union of all of these into one God. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna skip forward, Jeff. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, just trying to get a glimpse of everything people said. Um, Nigel says, as I think about how the access to God was controlled in the temple where only the priests could go in and only once a year, I am reminded that people still try to control access to God. The Pharisees in Jesus' day had rules about who was and who wasn't included. Do we today have rules even in Bloomsbury? Do we feel threatened when those who are excluded want to come in? And Matthew says that uh, he sees a conflict here between the comfort and security of an image of God that we can understand whoever this is to constrain God by what we can imagine. And yes, there is a cultural expectation of what a place of worship looks like, quiet, open, pews, but how would this compare to a tent in a field festival such as New Wine on Greenbelt?
5: I really like Liz's comment and I think like, I think it's very easy for us to sort of talk about other people putting boxes around God and like, oh, I had this bad experience, you know, with such like this type of church she did this and like, you know, while it's important to recognise that hurt, I think that those people like, you know, I know truly believe those are good people who are just doing their best and they're trapped in the box themselves and that's what's affecting things and I think like maybe we can use that to like shift our narrative of like you know fundamentally people are good people who can cause hurt because we're all capable of causing hurt and I think sometimes like our box is I guess that becomes our box that we put God in of like, oh, you know, we're the right ones. Everyone else is causing harm. So, you know, we're right and they're wrong. And it, it becomes just tribalistic again. Like, you know, we're the liberal Christians, they are the conservative Christians. But I, I think they're still good people. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but I I do think we can do that
3: we all have it wrong in some ways as well as right, you know, and uh, realizing that is probably one of the biggest things I think.
0: Yeah. Um, like every day, I feel like I'm going through different boxes. Recently, I've been, um, delving into strength and hope and, um, just help. Um, I just think it depends what you're going through in life and, um, I do find that for me, I am always asking for something um, because I feel like I can truly be my myself with God and not be ashamed or um, scared or anything because God, um, God God, just, you know, doesn't judge or um, I can, yeah, I can just be my authentic self with God. So I, I just feel like, every day i'm just in different boxes with with god
2: and i think fifi had a very had a good response to this uh and she says we can only take one slice of god but she is the whole pizza and i think we put god in a box because we can't fathom how big and awesome she really is it's easier if it's in small bites but jesus didn't care for easy
3: Yeah and I, and I think one of the other themes coming out of this uh, which I've been thinking about recently is about wholeness uh, in oneself and um, I think sometimes we put God in a box by coming to church on a Sunday or doing our religious things and doing our good things and then there's all the other stuff we do in life and we may or may not you know think about God in those contexts like at work or or, or other things and and yet really we know deep down that god knows and is interested in all of it and like uh like we were just talking about being our whole selves what does that mean and i found i wasn't like being my whole self at work because it didn't work didn't want that so i've now gone gone and found a place where i think they do want what i truly am and that makes it a lot easier so and it's so easy to sort of lose
5: it like you know i i started wearing a cross necklace because i wanted something to sort of remind me that I guess God was in everything that like if I noticed it was there then it would just be a reminder throughout the day but actually like that stopped working after a while like I that doesn't happen anymore it's sort of like I don't it's just something that I'm used to being there and I'm like oh it's there and maybe I'll fiddle with it and I'll I maybe still like use it as a visible symbol of who I am but I I don't I've lost that Sort of reminder thing I had, and like I already know like how to get it back. It's so easy to become used
2: to things. Indeed, um, I think many people in the chat have. Uh, there are so many comments, and um, sorry, I won't be able to go through them all. Um, but it's um, i think it's good to be part of a con- congregation where we can we can challenge these um, we can challenge old ideas new ideas and well switch the boxes <laughs> and sometimes accept that we all have our own box in a way
4: thank you andrea Let's pray. God, we give you praise that nothing we can say or think constrains you. You exist outside the boxes which limit our capacity to conceptualise you. We have no words to fully express what you are or what you mean to us. Our conversations about you have only left us with more surprises and further puzzles. Thank you. That despite these contradictions, we can still rely upon your power, especially at times when we ourselves are weak. Recognising that freedom comes as we let go of mental constraints, we acknowledge that our thinking often gets us into trouble. We know that all too often our entrenched patterns of thought lead to behaviour, which creates problematic situations for ourselves, for the people around us and for our society. Forgive us and help us to think better and live better. We thank you that our lives can flourish outside the situations and places which we're used to. We thank you for the many expressions of love and connection that continue through lockdown, at tier one, tier two, and even tier three. Thank you for the relationships which have deepened through Zoom FaceTime, webinars, and spending more time together with those we love. Thank you for the extra opportunity to reflect. But Lord, we know that there are many people who feel boxed in, trapped, isolated, or frustrated. We have many reasons to be anxious, particularly as the world's economic and political problems deepen. For those times when we're afraid or confused, We pray for a greater sense of your presence. We pray for people who are exhausted, sad or losing hope. We pray for people who are grieving losses. We thank you for the life of Fred Mardell, who's passed away after many years as a member of this church. And we pray for his wife, Iris. Thank you for all that Fred contributed and the inspiration that we can take from his generation. We pray for all the community projects which we're currently supporting, especially the training that Citizens UK is offering to people who want to become mental health champions. We thank you for the Evolving Faith Project and the hope that it brings. So, Lord, in all that we do this week, in person and online, in Bloomsbury and around the world, send us out with your words of comfort and peace in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.